Hey everybody and welcome to the Empathy Podcast. My name's Leanne Butterworth. Today we are talking about empathy and parents of kids with autism. And we're speaking with Cindy Corey, who has a beautiful son named Sam, who is on the autism spectrum. And when Cindy couldn't find schooling options for Sam that she felt were appropriate, she opened her own school. So today we're talking about the mental health challenges, the joy, the excitement, the opportunities of having a child on the autism spectrum. I hope you can join us. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Empathy Podcast. I'm really excited today. So I'm talking to Cindy Corey, and Cindy and I today are going to talk about empathy and parents of kids with autism. So welcome, welcome. Thank you, Leanne. Let's give a little bit of a background first of who you are and why you're the best person for me to talk about this today. Like the many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of families out there, I have a child on the autism spectrum. So that in itself makes me an expert on him anyway. And that's, I think, one thing, key thing to take away from the discussion we'll have today will be if you've met one person with autism, then you've met one person with autism and that they are very, very, very different. So to start with, yes, I can talk about my experience and the experience that we have with our son growing up, but also in recent years, I've had the honour of being able to support and serve the wider autistic community through uh, advocacy and through setting up educational options for young people with autism who kind of fall through the cracks in the education space. So with that experience, I've also got some postgrad qualifications in autism studies. So I know a little bit about autism, I guess, but really a lot of it comes from the experiences that we've had and learning about the experiences of the wider autism community itself. Yeah, gotcha. And I think your experience, so you've been gifted with a child, it's Sam, isn't it? Yeah. You've been gifted with a child who has autism and you've taken that and created a better world for him and and his situation and his friends and other people with autism. And so in my mind, it's very different talking to you to somebody who's studied autism. Yeah. So we'll get into some of the absolutely amazing things that you've done. So my experience of autism is essentially nil. So I want to get the terminology right. So when we talk today, how would you like me to refer to, is it autistic kids, kids with autism? How are we going to do that today because I don't want to get it wrong. Yeah, so the wider community of people with autism or autistic people, what they prefer changes from time to time. So, you know, five years ago we were talking about person-first language and we were sort of using the terms like a person with autism or a person on the autism spectrum because they're a person first and, and then, you know, autism isn't everything about them. But now the autistic community prefer to own that and say, no, you know, we are autistic and we're proud of it and we want to be called an autistic person. So it's, I think it's always respectful to acknowledge that there are different ways of addressing um, a person with autism or an autistic person. And for the sake, I think, of just having some consistency today, we'll use those terms interchangeably. 
but okay. it's important just to have that respectful acknowledgement um, that, that they prefer to be called what they prefer to be called. Everyone's different. Just like yeah. we like to be called he, she's, they's or theirs. Yeah. People um, on the autism spectrum prefer to be called that or an autistic person. So yeah. it's really about what's meaningful for that person. Yeah. And that's the whole thing about empathy, isn't it? I mean, when we come down to it, it's respecting the individual, how they feel and not putting people in boxes and assuming that you know who they are, what they do and what they like. So it's getting to know the person. So if we go right back to basics, what is autism? Yeah, a textbook version would be that People with autism are diagnosed on the basis of two characteristics that present themselves and they manifest themselves in a different way for each person. So one of the things that they look for is challenges with social communication, so not just communication, not just verbal language, but social communication, which is understanding social cues, which is also verbal or language ways of communicating, but more so that ability to understand the world around them and make sense of the world around them, so that's social communication. The second characteristic is um, repetitive behaviour. So insistence on sameness, repetitive play, repetitive movements and people with autism do those things for different reasons but they're the sort of the two sort of textbook characteristics in terms of diagnosing somebody with autism. Is it a disorder or is it a way of being? It It used to be called a neurological development disorder. Yeah. Okay. And I think in a medical and in a very clinical sense, they kind of still say that. And, you know, we have to as well respect that autism is very much a spectrum. It is quite, can be quite disabling for some people and for others where they've got really great social function, there are still some really big challenges that they have in being able to live a healthy, with good mental health life that's meaningful for them. So I think that we just need to be mindful that there are people out there who are quite disabled by their autism Mm. and others who still are challenged even though they might seem like they're quite capable on the outside. So, yeah, it's, it's when you work with people in the community who have autism, you really have to just take each one on their merits and, you know, learn about them as an individual, which we should for everybody really. Yeah. But um, it's important to do that because we know that autism can manifest itself in so many different ways and so many different levels and in so many different signs and characteristics for different people. Yeah. So then if it's so broad and if it's, is it largely still misunderstood or is it becoming more and more... So we've come we've we've come a long way. I think if I think about the history of people with autism, and I mean we're talking about something that we kind of knew was there for a long time, but it really wasn't until about the 1940s, 1950s that we actually had pediatricians and researchers actually look into well, what is it about these people who that are really different and when we think about the way they used to think about autistic people in those days, they were almost like the mad scientists, you know. These were people who really were a bit secluded, who uh, wanted to work on their own, who were very creative, who had 
incredible strengths and ability to focus and attention to detail and all these really great things that we think about people like Albert Einstein and those sorts of people who really made huge gains in the way that our societies work now. Those people were often seen as a bit different and a bit quirky and a bit out of the box. And so when when we look at children with autism and we see those characteristics, it's okay, it seems to be okay if it's an adult because they're an adult. We think there's a certain set of capabilities in terms of being able to cope in a social environment and whatnot. When a kid displays those types of characteristics, when a kid is withdrawn, when a kid has high attention to detail and high focus on one particular thing, we think, oh, they're not playing in the way that a kid should play. They're not seeing the wider world around them. They're not answering to their name when we call them because they're so transfixed on what they're doing. But if the alarm bells seem to go off. Mm. So when we think about how far we've come, I think that institutionalisation of people with autism in the past, obviously that doesn't happen anymore. Using those people as experiments to understand psychological disorders, that doesn't happen anymore. There's some incredible stories of those experiences of those scientists and those psychologists, the early sort of founders of autism who were engaging in different ways to try and understand these people. That is quite shocking. And I think to go from that to now having, you know, employment programs for um, people moving into working in IT companies, to having opportunities for people on the spectrum to express themselves through art and through music. These are huge changes in the way that we see the really positive things that people on the autism spectrum can give to our communities and Mm. being able to build their skills through their strengths and through their interests allows us to get the best from them. Yeah, absolutely. that's really kind of common sense for anybody. And there's language that used to be used that's not used anymore, isn't there? So like Asperger's? Yes. Now just on on the spectrum or is it now just all autism? So since 2013, I think. When the diagnosis manual changed, the diagnosis criteria changed a little bit. But yes, Asperger's used to be what were high-functioning autism. We don't even say that anymore. So yes, Asperger's and autism used to be two different things. Autism used to be those with the more classical autism syndrome that they used to call it, which is, you know, not verbal, no eye contact, uh, no physical engagement, repetitive, extreme repetitive behaviours, meltdowns, you know, all of those sort of more um, classical autism, things that they used to call. Mm. Um, And then Asperger's is those, you know, those Albert Einsteins, those kids who are quite clever but sort of falling through the cracks at school but also really struggle with the social communication part of things more so. So there's there's a huge difference between the way that people experience Mm. their lives being on the spectrum but now we're just all... All autism. It's all autism. There's no Asperger's. There's no autism syndrome. There's no high functioning, low functioning. We're all you're just on the spectrum. All on the spectrum. But it is important to acknowledge that yes, it's experienced in a different way for every person. And do you think then now, if somebody who and correct me if I use the wrong language, but if somebody who appears not to have what we would associate as classic autism comes out and says, I'm on the spectrum. Is there then a stigma against them because of assumptions or 
Does that make sense? Yeah, like, and that happens so much for so many people and particularly for people who are diagnosed late in their lives, yeah, so okay. people who are diagnosed as adults, you know, who always just couldn't put their finger on why things never really made sense when they were growing up and now as an adult some of them who are having kids of their own are going, oh, my goodness, my child's been diagnosed and that makes so much sense for me. Yeah. And then they go and seek a diagnosis. And that's happening a lot now. As well as females now being more prevalent, the old adage was four times more likely in boys than girls. But because autism presents itself differently in girls, they were sort of flying under the radar and sort of not being picked up Mm. um, in diagnosis numbers. So we're starting to see an increase now in girls being diagnosed, which is great because it means they have access to support They are able to make more sense of their identity if they take that on. But as well, there's a network, a huge network of people on the autism spectrum around the world that they have the opportunity to connect with. So they don't feel so different and so alone. And so, you know, it's important that we're, like anybody, um, connecting with people who are like us and interested in the same things and see the world the way we see it. Yeah, you just said there are more adults being diagnosed is that because of a lack and more girls is that because of a lack of understanding or a lack of because you said the girls slipped through the cracks and the adults slipped through the cracks so what was missed like what's changed there I think at the moment we diagnosis is really focused on early diagnosis and the reason for that is because we know that intense early intervention in the lives of a person with autism as early as possible can have a huge impact on their trajectory, life outcomes. So we know that if kids are diagnosed um, at, at a young age, I'm talking anywhere between 18 months and, say, four years of age, yeah. they're diagnosed there and they get that really intense early intervention. Their life outcomes are, are more likely to be, I guess, less impacted by the fact they have autism. So what happens when someone is diagnosed later is they miss out on all of that really early intense support. And when a young girl is diagnosed at eight or nine or as a teenager or as a woman, the types of supports that they then need to be able to cope with some of the things that have been challenging for them through their whole lives is much harder for them to do than if we're doing it at a much younger age where we've got more neuroplasticity and we've got, you know, the ability to adapt is a lot easier on a younger person than it is on someone who's a bit older. And that would change identity as well because you haven't formed an identity at age three as opposed to age nine or ten or teen or adult. That changes how you view yourself even though you haven't changed. That's right. It, it, you you then, and this is, I think, one of the things that people get a bit wary about when they want to talk about labels. Oh, we don't want to put a label on people. But sometimes that label can mean everything to that person. Mm-hmm. It makes the world make more sense for them. But it also helps them to understand what types of supports might actually help them with things that have been so challenging. Yeah. So I think... The, the rhetoric around labels is starting to change as well and we're hearing more about, no, I'm actually good with having that label. I'm actually good with identifying myself as an autistic person and now I actually just want to tell people I'm an autistic person yeah. and be proud of that because as much as there is 
challenges for those people. There are incredible things that people on the autism spectrum can give to our communities and can do for themselves. And I think that's the story that needs to be told. Yeah. And I think if people feel a sense of community, they feel a sense of belonging, they feel a sense of understanding themselves and they are proud and say, no, 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 this is who I am, then that goes a long way to educating other people as well and not having to make excuses or not having to deal with stigma. If you say, no, 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 this is who I am, this is how I was made, these are the challenges I have, I have a group of people who are awesome around me. I have lots of supports. Bring it on. Is that and that's the- really, yeah, and that's really what inclusion's all about. I mean, inclusion's all about creating a sense of belonging for people, but also balanced with a respect for people's individual uniqueness. Mm. But when we, when inclusion has to come at the cost of hiding a part of ourselves, then we're not really being included. And I think that it's important that, um, we're really starting to move towards balancing those two things yeah. and finding ways to support workplaces and organisations, schools and all different, you know, areas within our community that have the opportunity to make those environments and to make those experiences positive for everybody. And if we can try and sort of not pigeonhole people into, well, Yes, a person with autism is going to need certain adjustments, absolutely, to make those experiences positive and valuable and meaningful. But what are the things that we do for everybody to do that? How mm. do we be inclusive to everyone? And so it should never come at the cost of having to hide a part of who you are yeah. or hide something that you're good at that you think is just not meaningful in that environment. It really is about owning the labels, owning who you are, owning what you're really good at and admitting that you're not going to be good at certain things but asking for that support so that you can do it in the future. Brene Brown, I think, talks about the difference between belonging and fitting in. Mm. So fitting in is changing who you are to adapt to a group and belonging is being who you are and being embraced as you are. That's exactly right. So then if, if we talk about parents, let's go right back to the beginning. Parents have these wonderful images of they're pregnant. Yeah, we're going to have this. We're going to do this. Life is going to be good. And you're, you've got a kid who you sort of, you're not quite sure about. You think something's going on. What's that like? What's that, what's that process of diagnosis like? I, when I look back and I think about my son when he was a baby and I think about when he was a toddler and I think about some of the most experienced mothers that I know absolutely being dumbfounded by him, well, you know, when he wouldn't answer his name or gotcha. when he um, would just cry for no reason or when he would throw himself on the floor and bang his head on the concrete <gasps> um, repeatedly and we would just go, what is going on for no reason, when he was nearly two and didn't say a word. You know, when all of these things sort of start to come up, you know, some of the most experienced mothers that I know were just like, don't know what to do. And that for me was, okay, then something's not right here. Yeah. This isn't kind of the way it's supposed to go. And he is our first and only, so I had no experience in terms of having another child, so I, you know, had no idea really what to expect. But I did, you know, I did sort of um, start to see that his development looked very different 
yeah. to other children who were around him and other mums that I knew and including my own. And I remember us being at a family event and it was in a house. There were lots of people. There was music on. And Sam would have been about, oh, he wasn't even one yet. And he lost it. He just completely lost it. He had cried so hard like he was in pain. And we actually thought that maybe he'd hurt himself somehow. I don't know how, but maybe he'd actually hurt himself. So we actually started to, like, take all his clothes off to check him. Has he cut himself? Has he broken a bone? Like, what's happened? Something's happened. And as we just started to look for signs of injury or there was nothing, there was absolutely nothing, but he was just inconsolable, like scream. I've never heard a child scream like that. And we actually had to, my dad, I remember my dad actually having to go out into the party and tell everyone to be quiet and turn the music off of total silence. And we wrapped him up in a blanket and we carried him out. Oh, sweetheart. And it was, and we got him in the car. I didn't think we were going to get him in the car, but we got him in the car and he just stopped. And we were like, what the hell was that? What was that? That's not something that happens. Yeah. There's no language. There's no words to tell you what's happening. There's no pointing. There's no waving. There's no way to connect with him at that point. And so we were like, what is, I don't know what that was. And that for me was really the, the time when I thought I can't even, I can't go out in public. Yeah. I can't, you know, this is not right. This is not the way we should be experiencing having a child. And so they were the early signs that there was something more going on. And, I mean, he had some other issues as well, like hearing issues and things like that, that we got sorted. But when those things were improved and we didn't change and we didn't see any improvement from him at all, then I knew, I, I think I know what this is. Now I think I know what this is. And what did that feel like? Then I was like, get me a diagnosis now. <laughs> you became determined, Mama. <laughs> then I was like, okay, if I think I know what this is, I need it. I need to know what to do. I need, yeah. I need, I need help. I need tools. I need support. I need to know now what this uncertainty that I've had for so long is actually going to look like. Yeah. And so I remember going to our pediatrician and saying, you know, we've got some concerns, you know, at this point he was about two or two and a half and, you know, we've got some concerns. There's lots of lying on the floor for hours watching wheels turning on a car. There's no language. There's lots of meltdowns. Yeah. There's no pointing, no waving, no toilet training, no, like there was, it was like a nine-month-old trapped in a two-and-a-half-year-old's body. And so we were like, and no, well, when did he start walking? Even walking was at like 19 months. So we were like, it's not, something's not right. You know, we're not, we're not convinced. This is just a delayed development. We actually think that there's something going on. And so, and I just said to him, I'm not leaving this room without a diagnosis. Yeah. I'm just not leaving the room unless you start that process. Yeah. And And how long does the process take? Well, for us, I, we've heard some horror stories. Uh, we've heard people waiting, you know, 12 months to get a diagnosis. We've heard 
horrendous stories. For us, we went through a developmental pediatrician. So a normal pediatrician, standard pediatrician can't really diagnose. Yeah. It's got to go through a developmental pediatrician or psychologist. And we'd not had any experience with psychologists at that point. So we were, we referred to a developmental pediatrician. And his process was basically three sessions where he would undertake an assessment and spend some time with Sam sort of playing, showing him things, testing his capacity to adapt to things, change his behaviours, indicate that he wanted something, communication, all those things. So there's a range of tests that he did through play. And then the last session was actually with my husband and I about us um, and tests for us in terms of our, I guess, psychological capacities to support him on going and all those sorts of things. So after the three sessions, yes, there was a diagnosis at the end of that. And at that time we were able to know more about what are the things that Sam was actually really good at that we learned through that that testing experience. What are some of the things that he's going to struggle with? And then what are some of the things that we immediately need to work on? Yeah. And the types of supports that we can then engage to do that. So we need a speech therapist, we need an occupational therapist. We need probably a developmental educational program for him to prepare for school, you know, all those sorts of things. So for us that process was probably three months, I would say. And is that something that I've got so many questions. So I guess the first thing is once you have a diagnosis, does it then make it easier to communicate about Sam to other people? Yeah, it does in a way because then you can't just say, oh, you know, Sam has autism. But then people will have their own ways of understanding what that is through their own experiences and through people they've met or not met and things they've heard in the media or in a movie or whatever. Yeah. So in a way it's helpful, but in a way it's not because he's not Rain Man and he's not Temple Grandin. <laughs> it's not, you know, all of these figures that we hear and see in the movies. So yeah. he's different to that. He's Sam. So yeah, okay. we might expect that a person with autism might struggle in a social situation. And so, you know, when we had one of my husband's friends pop over the other day with his two sons, Sam just did not want to bar them. <laughs> And he, he was like, I'm going in my room, Mum. And I'm like, oh, that's cue for I don't want to deal with people right now. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, that's cool. And, you know, I gave the other boys something else to do. But, you know, it's we know that they're going to have particular things that they're going to struggle with. And, and you know, those core characteristics that I spoke about at the diagnosis, that's the start of understanding, well, these are some of the things that this person might struggle with. But what you could do is actually just ask them. Yeah. You know, yes, welcome to the birthday party. How can I make this positive for you? And what are some of the adjustments that you might need to make this successful? I have a bedroom that you can go to if it becomes overwhelming for you. Oh, no. Please go and, you know, use the bedroom if you need to. Yeah. Or we're going to be eating these things, but I've already checked with your mum and she said that you like two of the five things that we have. So I'll make sure that we've kept some for you. Just to include people, to make them feel like I can have the things that I feel comfortable with, I can get through this experience and get through this event with support and still feel like I'm included 
Because predictability and repetition is really important to hugely um, yeah. important to pre to most people on the autism spectrum. I would say, yeah, predictability, not knowing what's happening, uh, not knowing who people are, not knowing what's expected of them, is a really tricky thing for people on the autism spectrum. So the more that you can give them information about those things, the more they can feel comfortable going into something new. At the same time, it's important not to over-scaffold. So we don't want every experience to be made as predictable as possible because, let's face it, life's not predictable. Yeah. COVID, no one ever thought it was going to happen. And here we all are, our lives were turned upside down in an instant. Welcome to the world of a person on the autism spectrum. Yeah. Right? That happens for them all the time. But how can we teach them to adapt to that? How have we had to adapt? So it's really about thinking about, yes, we can provide that scaffolding and, yes, we can put, you know, routines in place and whatnot, but we want you to be able to also adapt to the change that comes when we the resilience and have the resilience to move through it. Yeah. So that's a skill that lots of people on the autism spectrum don't get to learn. and they are where there is support sometimes just over-scaffolded. And then if something moves outside of that, then the world just goes upside down. So, And that's not helpful then. No. The, the, you said before, your, I think you said it was your dad who had this beautiful reaction to when Sam had a meltdown when he was two. He said, can we turn the noise off? Can we turn the music off? Can we have it quiet? That seems like a beautiful reaction to me, a lovely empathetic reaction. But before Sam's diagnosis and maybe even since have you come up against like judgment and stigma about Sam and about let's say your parenting or about what you should be doing or who he is or why you couldn't control your child or is there that sort of judgment and stigma that parents of autistic kids come up against all the time all the time all the time in every in every part of their lives and in every part of ours And I think it's really important for families to learn that it's an opportunity to advocate. Don't take it personally. And you're doing your best, right? If you've ever met a a parent of a child on the spectrum, let me tell you, they're like a whole other species. (laughs) But I think the important thing for parents to know is not to take those things perfectly personally, but use it as an opportunity. And that because would take great The more strength. that we do that, the greater our communities are going to be for our kids when they're ready to move into them on their own. Yeah. And at the moment, moving into the community on your own for personal inspection is like falling off a cliff. Oh, God. Yeah. So we really need to, as parents, you really use those experiences as opportunities to change the way that people think. Yeah, um, about people on the spectrum and to educate them about ways that they can actually see. And that's one of the goals of, of this podcast as well. I mean, I want parents of kids on the spectrum to, I guess, take heart from what we're talking about and know that they're not alone. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but also for the public who's listening to know that our judgment, not mine, but their judgment, their stigma, their assumptions, their eye rolls, their that impacts the person. I mean, I don't have kids on the spectrum, but I've had a kid chuck a tantrum (laughs) in Big W. And the looks that I got 
And I know for me, I was, I had postnatal depression anyway. So I was depleted from the start, but I knew that the tantrum was going to end. And I was, I don't know, I was like, oh, get bent. Whereas if I was struggling with all of the things that you've just said, plus I don't get to hug my child necessarily, plus all the uncertainty, plus the, yeah, plus the struggles that you have, and then you've got other people making it harder. Oh, so what sort of, what sort of toll does that have on parents or not? Because I, th- I think you said like the divorce rate of parents of autistic kids, like 80%. Did you? S- yeah, it's really high in proportion to the general population. And yes, these things can put pressures on the family for sure. Absolutely. And I think for families where there are siblings, it's really difficult for siblings as well. Managing the dynamics of having a young person on the autism spectrum in the household is really tricky. It's really tricky. But you love them anyway. Yeah, you love gotcha. them because you they, yeah. And, you know, yes, some days are freaking hard, yeah. like really hard. And some days you feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall when you're trying to get through to a school or you're trying to get through to an employment service or, you know, whatever, all of this other stuff that, you know, we've got to kind of manoeuvre and manage to make work for our kids, regardless of how old they are. Yeah. You know, it, it's exhausting and it does take a toll. And I think that the more that we can try and focus on the really great and positive things that our kids have been able to achieve. And I think that's one of the things for parents that I really want them to know is even when it's really tough, like right now, can you just go back to like five years ago and think about the things that were really tough for you then? I'm sure they're not tough now. Yeah. You know, really think about how far they've come. You know, we're moving at the moment and we were cleaning out my son's books and I found all these books that we used to read to him when he was really little. He loved reading. He was obsessed with reading. He used to read all the time. When he was like two, three, four, it's just all he did was read. One of the things, we had these books that were about how does a dinosaur say I love you? How does a dinosaur say goodnight? How does a dinosaur go to sleep? How does a dinosaur eat his vegetables? How does a dinosaur do all these things? And I found these books and I went, oh, it just took me back to God. We just hammered him so hard on particular things that were really important. Sleep's kind of important. Yes, kids have trouble going to sleep, but, you know, your kids don't wake up in the middle of the night for four hours and have a chat, do they? Probably not. So it's like, you know, these are the things we had to really concentrate and work on. It just took me back to, my God, how far we've come. Yeah. And in that moment, I just thought we really take for granted sometimes what we've done, you know. We're just so focused on the problems and the problems and the problems that we're facing now and tomorrow and we're worried about, um, like my son's 11, I'm worried about what happens when he finishes school now and he's 11. I don't think mothers of 11-year-olds really worry about that yet, but I'm worried about it now, yeah. you know. So, you know, we worry so much about what we don't know, but we really should be proud of what we do know. And what we do know is all the things that we've worked on and how far we've come and what we've actually achieved. Yeah. And I think it's really important for parents to just take a break and take stock of what's happened yeah. in the past, how far your kids have come, 
and all of the creative ways that you've managed to help them in this time and be proud of yourself and just pat yourself on the back for a little bit. Have an extra glass of wine or whatever it is that you need to do. But just enjoy, enjoy as hard as it is, but enjoy the journey that you had yeah. and try and learn from it. And that's, that's really all we can do. We're not superhuman. And people, lots of people will say to me, oh, you're such an incredible mum and oh, you're so, I don't know how you do it and oh, blah, blah. But we're not different from anyone else. We've just got unique experiences that are put in front of us that we have to work through. We don't have a choice. We have to work through them. And if those unique experiences were put in front of you, guess what? You'd probably do the same thing. So it's not that we're superhuman and we're massively spectacular. We're just working through a life that we've got. And we want to do that in the way that best supports what our children want. And that's all we're doing. Like everybody else's. You okay, you do say that that you're not amazing, but you did do something pretty cool and you opened a school. Now, I'm pretty sure not every parent goes to that extent of opening a school. So tell me a bit about that journey and how mm. it is that you came to <laughs> open a school. <laughs> you say you're not incredible, but to me that's that's pretty outstanding. I don't think it, I think it's more crazy, a little bit insane. <laughs> Maybe I lost the plot along the way. Yeah, we did open a school. And really that came from being able to give our son every opportunity to change what people were telling me his future was going was going to look like. And when I started to understand really what that was um I scared the pants off me it really really scared me a lot I was reading things like people on the autism spectrum having the highest rates of unemployment amongst the general population of people with a disability so potentially on the most marginalized groups in the employment space six percent have financial independence six six Right. 9% will only go on to do any post-school study. Nine. We're talking about 47% in the general population. But that's not due to lack of, that's due to lack of opportunity. That's not due to lack of ability. Absolutely not. But these are the outcomes. These are what everybody's telling me right now. This is what life for an adult on the autism spectrum looks like. Gotcha. And I just went, oh, my God. Why? Because my son taught himself to read when he was three. It wasn't verbal, didn't tell us, but he could read. We found out. <laughs> you know, there's things that these kids can do and you just don't know. And it's just like, I don't understand. That's not acceptable to me. Yeah. It's not acceptable to me. We also then also experienced a lot of discrimination when a lot of schools didn't want to take our son on, didn't even want to enrol him. So we were like, well, you know, this is a really big problem for us. Then I found out we weren't the only ones. <laughs> and so we went through this process. It took a num- number of years, but we went through this process where we got accreditation to open a school and open a school. And our school, the Sycamore School, now has close to 100 kids. It's been open for four years. And we support kids who are you know, four and a half who are not verbal and not toilet trained and, you know, have never had a social learning experience at all. 
to kids who are in year nine, who design computer games, who are incredible artists, who are great self-advocates, and we're proud of every single one of those kids. So what's special about what you do? So you've said that mainstream didn't want Sam and weren't equipped for Sam, and then you've got special schools who are almost the is it is it that autism sort of fits in the middle they kind of fell through that crack in the middle between a special school and a mainstream school is that right yeah it's more about it's more about the level of support that you need so if you're kind of if autism is really disabling for you if you are if your sensory needs are so high that you potentially will never be toilet trained. If your verbal language is never going to come, if your capacity to engage with behavioural strategies is not very high and so you continue to have um, behaviours that cause self-injury and harm to others, then a special school can do incredible things for people like that. But a special school probably won't help a kid who has a high IQ, who is incredibly talented in um, the way they use his memory. Some of our kids have photographic memory. Oh, really? Some of our kids can decode really well. Some of our kids are really great at expressing themselves through art and through music. And they've got really, really great strengths. So it's about finding a place that can support and build those strengths into ways that they can communicate what's really great about them, ways that we can maximise their learning by using those strengths and those skills and being able to teach them about themselves as people who are proud of, of who they are and what they do. So at Sycamore we have... Our kids are pretty busy, put it that way. They have to do the national curriculum, which is the academic curriculum that all children in Australia have to learn. Yeah. So they have to learn that too. And we adjust the content to their level of learning. So where they're learning at different levels and different things because people on the autism spectrum have really high abilities in certain areas and so less in others. So their their levels of learning often different at different um areas of learning so like their maths might be at if they're in year six their maths might be at year nine but their literacy might be in year one gotcha. you know, so they learn at different levels so we adjust the curriculum to um to support them in those in those ways we deliver it in a way that's meaningful by bringing in their strengths and their interests to help the engagement and the motivation to learn and so it means that our kids can learn longer than they probably would have in other settings. Yeah. It means that our kids can engage with the curriculum in a more meaningful way, but it also helps us to use their strengths and their skills to really develop them by using them in those ways. And then the other thing that we do is we run alongside that what we call our autism curriculum, which is about developing our sensory capabilities our behavioural capabilities and emotional responses and giving them tools to be able to do that in a way that's meaningful for them, 
but also in a way that helps them to communicate what those things are yeah. because life isn't an autism school. Life is really unpredictable. Life is oftentimes you're on your own doing anything, that you're grocery shopping or whatever it is. You need to make sure that you can tell people, I'm really feeling overwhelmed and I need help with something. Gotcha. Or I'm only going to go to Woolies right before it closes because I know there's hardly anyone there. Yeah. You know, it's about building these ways to be able to support themselves independently and giving them the tools to self-advocate. So we're pretty different in that respect. I think a lot of specialist schools kind of do the over-scaffolding thing that we talked about before. Yeah. They just want to make the day successful so we can give them all this routine and all this. To tr- but we really go, we're going to give you that, but then we're going to wear it off. We want you to become less reliant on that support and manage these things independently in a way that makes it successful for you to engage in our communities. So we're really focused on that inclusive way of being able to contribute to our communities, but we want the same sentiment from our community back. And that's the stuff that's hard. It's the other side of the fence that is unpredictable. And so as much as we can prepare our young people for that, there's also needs to be a lot of work that goes into um, helping the wider community be more inclusive. So what sort of things would you want from the wider community? What sort of things would you like to tell the public now and have changed, like in your ideal world? So I am currently an inclusion consultant. So I work with organisations to create inclusive environments. and. One of the things that I talked about earlier was creating a balance between a sense of belonging and a respect for uniqueness. And so one of the first things, and a lot of organisations are doing this really well now, is supporting diverse groups, giving them the adjustments and the structures that they need to be able to be successful at work every day. That's great. And have the recognition of the backgrounds and the experiences and the values that those people bring. And that's a good step forward and, you know, we've seen a huge evolution in that diversity space. But I guess what's, what the deeper crux of that is that sense of belonging that we talked about. It's about not checking yourself at the door for the sake of fitting in. Mm. It's about really being able to give your whole self to your work and it means that your organisations have to be open to learning about who that is. Mm. So it's about understanding what the strengths are that everybody brings to our organisation. That's not written on their CV. Have you got an accountant sitting in the back of the room who plays chess club on a weekend as a champion chess player? Well, <laughs> guess what skills they're going to bring to the table? A bit more than they're doing probably for you behind a desk doing accounting work. You might want to bring them into your data analytics around marketing because they're going to have a totally different way of looking at that. Yeah. It's really about leveraging the differences within us to get this unknown third factor of creativity and innovation that comes when we're inclusive. And so for people on the autism spectrum, those opportunities are huge for them. Yeah. That really enables them to or enables organisations to make the most out of the critical thinking, the attention to detail, the commitment. People on the autism spectrum make great employees. They don't engage in office gossip, not into <laughs> politics. They just get in, heads down, bums up, smash, smash, smash. They're very efficient, very productive, good attention to detail. They just get the job done. 
And yeah. people are starting to see that. We've got huge IT companies who are engaging mm-hmm. in changing the way that their HR practices are managed to give people with autism greater success in getting jobs there because they want to build teams who are like that. Yeah. They want to build teams of people on the spectrum there. And so now they do purposefully. Yeah. And there's lots of companies around the world that are starting to do that. But what I want to see happen is we move away from the stereotype of a person on the spectrum being great in tech yeah. to a person on the spectrum is also creative. A person on the spectrum is um, also an intuitive thinker and a person on the spectrum also has empathy. That's a huge myth. So, yeah. you know, there's lots of ways that we can do things like that that yeah. gives these people greater opportunities because can you imagine how much depth we're going to have in our communities and in our workplaces if those sorts of people were given the opportunities to really give their all to their work. And oh, absolutely. I want that to happen to everyone. Yeah. And I think it's also for the general public to listen to podcasts, to do, I mean, the last podcast I did was about prisoners and it's, it's educating ourselves on different people, different experiences. And that's the idea of this podcast is to get people to open up their minds to different experiences, different people, different ways of life, different ways of doing things. One of the best books I ever read on autism, and it's just, I've just remembered it, is The Reason I Jump. Yeah. Have you read? And I just, when I Googled it before, I think they're making a movie of it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the most beautiful book and by, and it's written by a 13 year old Japanese boy with autism. Yep. And he explains why he does what he does. The reason yeah. that repetitive, like, and by the end of it, because it's a question answer, we ask a question, he answers it. And by the end of it, you can start to predict what the answer is going to be. And it's the most beautiful book, but it's, you still have to go and find a book and read a book and educate yourself. And that takes interest and effort and empathy. What is it that you would like parents to know? So parents who maybe have just received a diagnosis or they've got a kid on the spectrum and they're maybe not doing so good. What is it you want other parents to know? I think for people who are new autism parents, so for people who are uh, just receiving that diagnosis, yes, there is a huge world of uncertainty and you don't know what your child's future is going to look like. Nobody does. No. But all you can do is really think about what are the things that are really that is really going to make life easier for your child? And depending on how old they are, think about how meaningful it is for them. So try and get their commitment and their buy-in to the goals that you set because it will help keep their motivation and engagement towards reaching those goals. So if you're talking about a toddler, obviously that's kind of not going to happen. But if you're talking about a you know, a person who's in their teens or preteens or um, even in their early 20s, try and make those goals meaningful for them. And I think that's a really respectful way too of being able to, to think about there's certain things that we want for our kids, but it's actually not really about what we want for our kids. It's actually what our kids want for their lives. Yes. And us being able to give them the tools to be able to make the choice to do what they want with their lives. So, yes, toilet training is probably important and speaking 
could be important for some people, great communicators without using verbal language. But thing is to know that your child's going to want to choose their own future and your job is to make sure that they get to do that. And to do that, they're going to need a certain set of skills and capabilities to make that choice. So arm them with everything that they need and then let them do it. Where does self-care play into the parents? Are you allowed to to have your own identity and you're allowed to take care of yourself or do you then, once you've got an autistic kid, that's your life, that's it, that's your identity. You, You are now Cindy who is the mother of an autistic child and that's it. You know what, for many, many years, that's who I was. Gotcha. That's who I was because every waking moment was about therapy, was about practice, mm. was about appointments, was about, it was just non-stop for years. And it got to a point where we had good support networks in place, we had, you know, goals that we were working on and there was some more, I guess, certainty around what we think we might be able to achieve over a period of time. And that doesn't come, you know, until you've been through this journey for a few years. But once you get to that point, you can sort of start to go, oh, I can actually think about my career. <laughs> actually think about going back and doing some study and I can think about, well, what is it that I want? And, oh, I am separate. I am separate from my child. I do everything for my child, but I'm not my child and I'm not, I guess, defined by that experience. I have my own sets of beliefs and values and experiences and I want to be able to develop those in a meaningful way for myself now. So that is really hard for parents to see and almost sounds a little bit selfish and probably sounds selfish to people who are just beginning this journey. (laughs) They're probably like, oh, my God, what is she talking about? But in years to come, you'll start to realise that your kids are going to be who your kids are going to be. Yeah. Meaningful for them. So it's time for you to be who you want to be. And I think also, aren't you a better, aren't you a better parent to your kid when you're well rested, when you're, when you have your own support networks, when you are taking care and prioritising your own health and mental health? Does that make you a, wouldn't that make you a better parent to the kid versus when you're depleted or is depleted just a given? Of course you'll be a better parent. You'll be better at anything when you're well-rested and when you are looking after yourself. But I think, too, what we don't want is for you to be forced into doing that because you've burnt yourself out or whatever and then, oh, well, I have to stop now because now I'm unwell. And then that creates problems. So it's about taking a proactive approach to, you know, being able to, I guess, manage risk in a way, you know. But in saying that, you never know what's around the corner and there are things that are out of our control. I've got cancer, for example. There are things that are out of your control that will happen and everyone did just have to go, what? Hang on, mum's got to look after herself for like two years. (laughs) So so what are we going to do to make sure that she gets what she needs and she can move through that? And Sam gets what he needs and he can continue to move through what he needs. So we, yeah, we actually sat around the dining table, me and my husband and Sam, and went, right, how are we going to do it? And we we thought about how we're going to support each other. And we just said, you know, it did make Sam grow up a little bit, (laughs) I'll put it that way. But, you know, we, we all went on a bit of a learning journey. 
and we yeah. all went on a bit of a journey of, well, this is how I can help. And, you know, Sam, who hates doing anything I ask him to do, was, oh, mum, I'll make sure that, you know, you drink lots of water and I'll Aww. set an alarm on your phone so that, you know, when you have to drink water and oh, I can do this and I can do that. And you know, next thing you knew, he was great help, you know, and he was doing things that he would have definitely not have done before. Yeah. So if we hadn't worked hard on a particular set of skills before, but he wouldn't have been prepared for what was going to happen, yeah. those things that are out of our control. And so being able to give him those tools and then him being able to make a choice about how he dealt with that situation is exactly the thing I'm talking about. And that's our role as parents, yeah. is to give them the tools but then let them decide how they're going to manage that situation. Yeah. And just be there for them and remind them and go, oh, do you need some, do you need a break? And all you need, not, it's time for a break, off you go, because that's <laughs> going to be, oh, I'm not doing that. I don't need a break. It's do you need a break? You make the decision. And yeah. if you know I want to finish it to the end, okay. But just, you know, keep in mind that you might get time. Okay, okay, fine, and let them do it. You know? yeah. we've, got to let, we've got to let go and just be the support. Yeah. Wow. Cindy, you're adorable. And you're amazing, and <laughs> you're you're okay now though. Your cancer is, yeah, I'm good. Oh, good. I'm good. Oh, good. so far, so good. Oh, good. Well, thank you so much for our discussion today. I've learned so much, and I always do in these discussions, but it, and it always blows me away. And I love learning about this stuff. So I hope that other people listening, parents, if you've got kids, um, I mean, any kid. <laughs> to be on the spectrum for you to treat them as an individual and let them experience the world but also do it in a way that's respectful of that individual child but know that there are supports there are people who are just like you who want nothing but the best for you and your kid for the public it's I think time to learn a bit more to open our minds open our hearts really see all of the amazing opportunities that come with knowing autistic people, embracing and employing autistic people. Oh, look, I, I think there's so much to take away from today's discussion. Cindy, if people want to find you, you said you're an inclusion consultant, you've got a school. If people want to find you and reach out and learn more about this, how do they contact you? Best way is to email me or take a look at my website and you'll see all of the things that I do now and ways that I can support different organisations to, I guess, be best prepared for helping these types of people and, and, and taking the beautiful things that come with them. So my website is cindycorry.com.au. I've got a Facebook page called Good Human, Good Human Inclusion Strategies. Oh. You can touch base with me, yeah, through, through either of those two channels. Lovely. And I'll put the links down below yeah, wherever they go in all the places that I post this. Thank you so much for today. It's been an absolute joy to talk to you. Thanks, Thanks, Cindy. Wow, what a massive discussion. Thank you so much, Cindy. I learned a lot. Uh, I have found out that the movie The Reason I Jump will be in Australia late this year or early next year, but I will put links to that down below and links to Cindy and all of her, all of the different ways that you can find her and her inclusion uh, consultancy program. 
Thank you so much. That was the Empathy Podcast. If you would like to learn more about empathy training, you can now go to empathyfirst.com.au and find our two free empathy training courses, which are Empathy Fundamentals and Using Empathy to Write Emails.